For those of you who are visiting, I see if, uh, several visitors with us this morning, and, and um, I just want to explain a little bit of what we're doing uh, so that you don't, don't feel lost. Uh, we are going through the Bible uh, this in the next eight months or next seven months now. Uh, and we have a daily reading, kind of accelerated. And so as we go through this, we're, our Wednesday classes and our Sunday classes are centered around the reading from this past week. Which means that there's some, sometimes some difficult passages to get through. We've, we've fortunately, we've, we've gotten out of Leviticus. We made it through Leviticus. Um, and, and some of you probably are going to wonder why I picked the text I picked today. Uh, because as I went through uh, Numbers, we, we get into, I mean, opening a Numbers is, hey, quite frankly, it's Numbers. There's a lot of Numbers there. Uh, and how many people were here and how many, let's take the census and all that. And there's some really difficult stuff there. Fortunately, it's only for a few chapters, and we get into some stories again. Wasn't it great to get back into some stories this week? And so um, I thought you know, one, of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is Balaam and the donkey. Uh, I love that. I love that story. It's very amusing. I like amusing stories, and, uh, especially when they, they have some points to them, as the Bible does. But I thought, what is the story of Balaam and the donkey? Because as we go through this, we're trying to pull out some of the big ideas. Because we're, we're taking off such a chunk each week, we want to just focus on a big idea, something really major. And, and really the story of Balaam and donkey is, is trust the Word of God. And we've kind of already handled that at the very beginning. That was kind of our first, the first message that we did uh, in this entire series, was to trust the things that we're going to read. And so I didn't really want to tread that ground again with, with only... You know, 30-some-odd weeks to, to go through this. I want to handle some bigger ideas. So um, then I thought, well, what about the spies? Uh, we could do that. We could talk about, uh, well, what's that story? The, the spies going into Canaan and, and, and uh, you know, we really, quite frankly, we, we learned that 10 people didn't trust God and didn't trust what God said. It's kind of the same idea. There's a lot of trust issues, apparently, that they had back then. Uh, and so a lot of stories made it uh, into the Bible from that. So the text that we're going to read today, uh, you probably read it and, and maybe you didn't get all through it. And maybe you, you kind of skimmed a little bit. This is where you kind of hit the every other verse or every other couple of verses, and you're kind of like, okay, I read that. <laughs> uh, and, and this is, if you did read it, you're probably not thinking that I was going to preach from it. And, and, and if you did thought, think, I wonder if he's going to preach on that, you had no idea what in the world I was going to say about it. So with that, we're going to turn to Numbers, uh, the book of Numbers in chapter 6. Number 6. Yes, I went there. <laughs> Number 6, beginning in verse 1. Uh, he says, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must obtain, uh, abstain from wine and other fermented drink. He can't drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. He cannot drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. Not as long as he's a Nazarite. He must not eat anything that comes from a grapevine, not from the seed out to the skin. During the entire period of this vow of separation, no razor may be used on its head. He must be holy until the time of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body. Even if his own father or mother or brother or sister dies, he must not make himself ceremonially unclean because of them. 
because the symbol of his separation of God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is separate to the Lord. If someone dies suddenly in his presence, thus defiling the hair he has dedicated, he must shave his head uh, on the day of his cleansing, which is the seventh day. And on the eighth day, he brings two doves, two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The priest is to offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to make atonement for him because he sinned. What? You mean he sinned? I was just there and the guy keeled over on me. Yeah, you sinned. The same day he is to consecrate his head. He must dedicate himself to the Lord for the period of his separation and bring a year-old male lamb as a guilt offering. The previous days don't count because he became defiled during his separation. Now this is the law for the Nazarite. When he is, the period of separation is over, he is to be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He presents his offering, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, together with the grain offering, drink offerings, all that, uh, he brings it. The priest is to present them before the Lord and make the sin offering, the burnt offering. He is to present the basket of unleavened bread, sacrifice the ram, uh, together with its grain offering and drink offering. And then at the entrance of the tent of meeting, the Nazarite must shave off the hair that he has dedicated. He is to take the hair and put it on the fire, but that smelt good. That is under the sacrifice of the fellowship offering. And after the Nazarite has shaved off the hair of his dedication, the priest is to place in his hands a boiled shoulder of the ram, a cake, a wafer of the basket, both made without yeast. The priest shall then wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. They are holy and belong to the priest, together with the uh, breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows his offering to the Lord in accordance to his separation, in addition to whatever else he can afford. He must fulfill the vow that he has made according to the law of the Nazarite. And that's interesting. Now, what's interesting about this, well, there's a couple of things. One of the things I found interesting is thinking about who is a Nazarite. Because he dedicates a lot of time and detail to what they can and can't do. And so this is who I came up with, uh, really three or four people. Uh, of course, Samson is the most well-known because in the Bible, he's the only one that's ever called a Nazarite. Now, we know that there's most likely other Nazarites, and I could come up with a list of, depending on how you want to count, another list of three, maybe four more. Um, so Samuel is spoken of as, as someone who... Uh, never had his head cut, or his hair cut. Uh, he was presented and dedicated to God. doesn't say anything about grapes with, with him, but, uh, but that's, that's interesting uh, that he appears to be a Nazarite. John the Baptist, now interesting, John the Baptist doesn't say anything about his hair. It does say that he couldn't eat grapes. He was, you know, called for, even from his from his mother's womb and, and, and various things like that to be a precursor for Christ. So he was specially dedicated for that. And uh, nothing about, again, nothing about his hair, but, but based on the requirement that he didn't eat anything to do with a grape, it appears that, that he was a Nazarite. Then we go back to the Old Testament here. And interestingly enough, Samson's mother, at least, and, and I had not known this, I did not know that women could be Nazarites. Uh, but at least while Samson, while she was pregnant with Samson, Samson's mother, of course, she wouldn't have had to cut her hair. So that would not have been a thing that they would have do anyway. So that you don't have to tell them not to do what they wouldn't do ordinarily. But she couldn't 
eat grapes while she was pregnant with him. That's how, how separate that Samson had to be, was that even his mother couldn't touch grapes while, while she was pregnant with him. So, so there's, a, there's one more that we're going to get to a little bit later. I'm going to leave him kind of as a sneak attack. Uh, but but in going through this, there's not a whole lot of Nazarites. Now, I guess I can see why. I mean, who wants to go through that? Um, who wants to, to, to go through all that nonsense? And yet, for something that, that, that doesn't seem to be that popular, there's, there's some detail, there's some time spent. Why? Well, um, that's what we're going to get into. The main lesson we want to take away from this today is looking in a number of ways, going above and beyond. That's really our big idea. I want you to get the idea of going above and beyond. Now, when we think of, when we think of the Nazarites, we, as I say, we think of Samson, we think, we think of strength because Samson was strong. <clears throat> and I want you to notice that that is a, something that has to do with an individual ag- agreement. There's this relationship with with man and with God between the two, uh, and specifically in the Nazarite vow, it was very individual. So we don't learn that Samuel could pick up heavy objects and walk miles with them, or John the Baptist for that matter, or or, or while she was pregnant uh, with them, Samson's mother. I, I don't I don't see that anywhere. So so why Samson? Well, that's because it was an expression between him and God. It was their their personal thing. Because this wasn't a requirement. Okay, so, so when we talk about a requirement, there is a difference between an expectation and a requirement. Right? Um, there's this day in our calendar. Right? It is coming up. And it is a day where all men are going to be expected to do certain things. We're all going to be expected. Now, when I took my vows, I said nothing about chocolates, and I said nothing about flowers. I distinctly remember that. And yet, the expectations are there. On this one day of the year, at least, there must be chocolates, and there must be flowers. It is expected, but not required. And I want you to think of, and I don't want this to turn this into a, a sermon about fasting, but there's kind of an interesting parallel here. This is not a sermon about fasting, I repeat. But you'll notice when, when God talked about fasting that he said, when you fast, do this. In other words, he didn't say, if you fast, do this. There was kind of an expectation that this was a part of a relationship with God. Not a requirement, but an expectation. And there are elements, to make it more broad than than just that, there are elements of our relationship with God that are individual. Not just in fasting. God asks us to do more 
than what is required. <clears throat> Churches, no matter where I've been, divide themselves into two groups. Now, I'm not saying um, this church from that church, but I mean, within one congregation, no matter where I've been, there are, not necessarily even the whole congregation, but there will be two elements that are present within every congregation. And not everybody in the congregation will fit into one of these two groups. But there are groups on one side, and they are typically opposed to groups on the other side, at least in some philosophical way. They might like each other and get along with each other, but there will be a philosophical difference. And there is one group that looks at the other group, and they say, you are liberal. There's the liberals. And then then there's the uh, other side, and and so liberals look over at the other side and say, well, you're a legalist. So, So you have the liberals and the legalists. These two groups are in most every congregation that I've ever been in. And really, when you want to get down to it and boil it down, there are two groups of legalists, is what they are. Now, the first group of legalists is easily recognizable. The first group of legalists that we all call legalists is a group that is focused on the details of behavior, of required behavior. And specifically, they like the behavior that you're not supposed to do. They like to talk about the things that you're not supposed to do. Not doing certain behaviors is a part of religious life. But they like to emphasize the things that you're not supposed to do. And if we want to get really specific, they like to emphasize the behaviors that other people are not supposed to do. That is the most obvious uh, view of, or most obvious legalistic group. Now, there's the other side of that. There's the people that are opposed to them, and you say, well, you can't call those people legalists because they're really interested in not being controlled at all. Now, how can you say, I mean, they don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be told what not to do. They oppose... In philosophy, any required behavior or any prohibited, prohibited required behavior. So, so they, how can you call them legalists? Well, because of, here's how they frame it. Here's how they frame their objections to being controlled. Is, where does the Bible say, I have to do that? See, they want the black and whites. They want, they want the exact, it's a type of legalism. They, they want the exact phraseology that prohibits said behavior. Or they say, where does it say that I have to do that? The Bible doesn't say I have to do that. Remember, we talked, again, we talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about the sacrifices, that, that there were prohibited things that if you, if you violated the prohibition, you sinned. There were things that you were required to do under the law that if you failed to do it, you were also in sin. There's, there's both sides of the coin. And so, so the liberal does not want to be forced to do something he doesn't want to do and doesn't want to be prohibited from doing the things he likes to do. And if it's not legally spelled out that he must or must not, he's like, I'm free. And so, so both are a form of legalism. 
And again, not everybody fits into one of the two groups. There are plenty of people who are uh, probably, you know, if we if we looked at the the how, what do they call it, the standard deviations, most of the people fall in between, and you find a, a fringe group on either uh, on either end of things. And and the majority of the vast majority of people fall in the middle, uh, and of the more reasonable. So the thing is to look at, especially in the New Testament, to look at the equation different. To look at it, and, and, and we see here in this Nazarite vow, in the middle of a legal document, we're talking about legalism, in the middle of a legal document, God dedicates some space to a relationship that was completely optional, that wasn't required or prohibited. And now there's some rules about how to do it if you're going to do it, but the thing itself was not required. How much more in the New Testament do we have a relationship that, that includes things that are optional, not required, not prohibited, that we may do or choose not to do as a part of our expression towards God? Service is not a chore. It is an opportunity. We have to stop asking the old questions. Why can't I do that? Why must I do that? It is not a get to or got to. It is a get to. I don't have to do something. I get to do it. I don't have to get up on Sunday morning. I get to get up on Sunday morning. And, and you go through. I don't have to give. I get to give. It is an opportunity. It is not a chore. It is a part of my expression of my relationship with God. So, we move on to a next question, or series of questions. Why grapes and why hair? I've heard a lot of explanations, most of them which I think are stupid. Let me tell you a little secret. Why grapes and why hair? I don't know. I don't know. Why grapes? Why hair? That's the best explanation. I've heard a lot of things. I've heard uh, explanations that, well, this has to do with with some sort of moral thing, but there's just no way you can square it. I mean, uh, a Nazarite... It would have been hard for them to be a Christian. Uh, the New Testament, uh, I mean, our, our communion involves product of grape. <laughs> it would have seemed to be a, a difficult thing to do. This is the Old Testament, part of the Old Testament relationship where grapes didn't play a significant role in anything. I want to go back to fast. I, I know it's weird. I said, I said this is not a sermon about fasting, and yet this is the second time I've mentioned it. But we're coming up on the time of season where uh, some people will start talking about giving something up as a, as a fast. And they will talk about giving things up for Lent. I don't know what that means. Lent is not in my Bible. I don't know what it means. I really don't. 
but they will give it up for Lent. And, now this is a very Catholic state. I grew up in a very Catholic state of Massachusetts. And uh, Irish and Italian Catholic. I mean, that's, that's what there are. And <clears throat> so, I heard this phrase, giving it up for Lent, quite a bit. And I can tell you right now, that the people who gave things up for Lent, the conversation typically went something like this. Oh, it's Lent. Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't participate in this conversation, by the way, because I wasn't Catholic. So, but it's just, you always hear, overhear people talking. Oh, what are you giving up for Lent? Oh, I'm going to give up swearing. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give up drinking. Okay. And what it kind of turned out to be, it kind of turned out to be like the people who had already messed up their New Year's resolutions, and about three months later, you get like a second opportunity. Like, you get a do-over. So, that's the way this was. And I think of myself, that's not what a fast is. There was nothing about grapes in the Old Testament that says right or wrong. There's nothing about hair. Or there's nothing about cutting your hair that's wrong. So why, why grapes and why hair? And other than the fact that we go above and beyond. We do some things that we're not required to do as a part of our relationship. That's really what it's about. In giving up something for God, there are a lot of times we're asked to give up things that aren't wrong. They might be not beneficial. Listen, if you're giving up something for a fast, it's fine. It's not a time to give up something that you're not supposed to be doing. It was, now we, we could get into the argument. Well, you had a list of things there, Andrew, that, that, uh, that not necessarily all of those things in that list are things that are wrong. Morally speaking, that's probably true. You know, <clears throat> uh, there are things that you shouldn't do that are not necessarily morally wrong. What do you mean? If you say you shouldn't do that, doesn't that mean it's morally wrong? No, you shouldn't hit your head with a hammer. I, I'm not telling you it's a sin to hit your head with a hammer. I'm just telling you you shouldn't do it. There are things you shouldn't do that are not morally wrong. There are things you shouldn't do as a Christian because they are counterproductive in a lot of ways. They may be not counterproductive to you, but they may be counterproductive to other people. And when we come up with, uh, w in, into situations where those things impact other people in certain ways, it's something you shouldn't do. It's a part of your relationship. You have a greater relationship with God, and your relationship with God is greater than that thing that you like to do. The call to Christianity asks you to be a part of something that is larger than yourself. And I want to talk about now an unexpected Nazarite. I want to turn all the way to the end, of the, almost the end of our, our Bible, Acts chapter 18, way on the other side. Acts chapter 18, some of the last, really, events in the Bible. Acts is a history of of really the events from the beginning of the church up through the, almost the, the death of Paul. 
Acts chapter 18 is some of the last things that we know about our New Testament. And in verse 18, he says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And before he sailed, he had his hair cut off a centuria because of a vow he had taken. Now, I know this sounds weird. How did Paul take communion uh, and, and be a Nazarite? I don't know. I don't know. It appears he was a Nazarite. How did he do that? Because there are specific times where he is mentioned as taking communion. Did he violate the Nazarite vow? Here's the thing. And this is what I looked at and went back and looked at the Bible. We think of Nazarite vow being a permanent thing, but it wasn't a permanent thing. You could take a Nazarite vow, by the way, for as few as eight days. It was up to the person. Now, <clears throat> that's not really what I want to talk about. It explains Samson, and I want to talk more about Samson. Because we, we look at Samson, and Samson gets his hair cut off, and he, he gave up the secret, and we know that story. And <clears throat> At the end of his life, he, we see him knocking over the walls, and we kind of get this idea that Samson, well, you, you're invalid, you can no longer do it. It's like, like a, a, a monk that took a vow of silence and broke it. Now you kind of ruined everything. And all that cutting his hair did, what, that was the legal termination of the contract, of the agreement. It nowhere said that you could not take another vow. It just terminated that one. And so Samson ends his contract when his hair is cut, and he begins a new contract while he's in prison, while they're making fun of him, and no one's paying attention to the fact that his hair is growing. He's made, apparently, a new Nazarite vow. Not to cut my hair. Not going to cut my hair. And as we said, the concept of this ability, this great strength, that was just an agreement between him and God. It existed nowhere else. We don't read about John the Baptist having a great, great strength. We don't, we don't read about Samuel having great strength. We don't read about the Apostle Paul knocking over buildings. Right? That's just Samson, just him, just that relationship that they expressed between God and him. And God honors it. Again, now God did not have to give him great strength. He could have just said, well, thanks for the Nazarite vow. And I'll, I'll, I appreciate that. And it's a vow and we have a great relationship, but you're not getting that again. He could have said that. But God honors it. With the same agreement that they had had before. And I want you to understand something. That we talked about all the ways that God asks you to go above and beyond. But understand that in your relationship with God, you will never get to outdo God. You cannot outdo God. When we remain faithless, He remains faithful, the Bible says. Understand that we can make decisions that, that undo some of the stuff that we've done. And God says, you can start over. You can renew your vow. Renew our vows, right? Right? 
You get to renew your vows. Maybe I intended to make it permanent. Much like Samson. Samson was supposed to be a, a Nazarite for life. Well, he messed up. Guess what? You can come back. You can start over. You can make another vow. As we close, if you need to renew that vow, if you need to make that new again, renew it. Make it new. You can't outdo God in going above and beyond. That's our big idea.